Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway, coming to you from WHYY in Philadelphia this week. And it's good to have you with us. We have a lot of stuff to get to in the show. We're talking health care with Margot Sanger-Katz of The New York Times. We'll have a conversation about Maine Senator Susan Collins and her role in the impeachment trial. But first, we're here in the Keystone State, so we wanted to kick things off with a look at the battle for this very important state in 2020. Pennsylvania is one of the handful of swing states that will determine the winner of the Electoral College. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention from Democrats yet because its primary isn't until April 28th. But of course, we're going to be spending a lot of time this election season focusing on the state. And we begin that look today with two members of Congress who represent districts in Philadelphia. I spoke first with Congressman Brendan Boyle, who represents Pennsylvania's 2nd Congressional District, in his office on Capitol Hill earlier this week. My current congressional district is about half of the city of Philadelphia, Um, basically northeast Philadelphia, parts of north Philadelphia, and including some of the really hip and increasingly expensive neighborhoods that border downtown areas like Fishtown and and Northern Liberties. Um, It is a very Democratic district, about 75, 25 roughly, and it is a diverse district in, in the true sense. It's socioeconomically diverse, many working class and middle class areas, some real deep pockets of poverty, and some incredible uh, wealth in some of those neighborhoods that I described. And it's also racially diverse, about half white, a uh, little less than a quarter African American, and about 20% Hispanic. So when I was looking at the results, the election results in this district, and this might be different now, I know, because of the lines being redrawn in 2018. But in 2016, what I saw was a district that in 2012 had voted for Obama by about 77%, gave 73% to Hillary Clinton. Now, that's still a very heavily Democratic district, but she dropped off some. And that Trump got about 10,000 more votes than Mitt Romney had gotten in 2012. And in a state that was decided by 44,000 votes, 10,000 votes is a big deal. Can you tell us what happened there and what, what that is telling us about Trump and Democrats and their hopes for Pennsylvania? Well, what you saw in the Northeast Philadelphia part of my district, which is a very blue collar, uh, white majority area, you saw the same dynamic in Northeast Philadelphia that you saw in Erie County uh, in Northwestern Pennsylvania about seven hours away, that you saw in Lackawanna County where Scranton is, that you saw in many other parts of Pennsylvania. And that is largely blue-collar, Democratic-leaning areas that we uh, won with Obama twice, that we won with John Kerry and Al Gore and Bill Clinton while they were all carrying the state, um, we badly underperformed. Now, uh, Trump did win some of the Northeast Philadelphia awards, but Hillary Clinton won the bulk of them, and she still won a slight majority in Northeast Philadelphia. But the drop-off in margin in those kind of areas is basically how we went from a five-point victory in 2012 to a one-point loss in 2016. So now here we are. It's We're on the eve of another general election. Talk to us about those neighborhoods in Northeast Philly and how they're processing the president and Democrats. Well, it's interesting. Um, not just in Northeast Philadelphia, but I, I think in demographically similar areas throughout the state, we won them back by quite a good margin in 2018. Um, You saw that in a number of congressional races. You also saw it in a number of state legislative races. For 2020, though, I think they are very much up in the air. It is an area that disproportionately has a lot of swing voters. In a time in which there are clearly fewer swing voters today than there was a a generation ago, uh, these are areas that happen to have a lot of swing voters. And so as, as we move forward, to 2020, there's no question that a big part of our campaign needs to reach out to these areas. And what are the messages and the issues that resonate with these voters? I mean, how did they go from voting in the first place 
for Obama and Kerry and Gore to voting for Trump. How much of this do you think was about economics? How much is this personality, culture? Right. I'll say this. I think there's a short-term answer and a long-term answer. Short-term, there's no question focusing on pocketbook issues about how voting Democratic will improve the lives of those kind of voters that we're talking about. That is absolutely important. Physically showing up. Uh, something as simple as that people really pay attention to. But then there's a, the longer-term issue, which deeply concerns me. There are many, many blue-collar areas of our state and our country that over a generation are just not benefiting from the modern economy. Something in the early 1980s began to happen in which you see, and you've seen this now for close to four decades, for those who have a limited higher education, there are fewer jobs for less pay and fewer benefits than there was a generation ago. And the idea that we're going to solve that issue in one election cycle, I think, would be incredibly naive. The issue then of economics sort of put that in context of the broader cultural conversation, because a lot of what we hear from districts like yours or parts of the state that we're talking about recently is that Democrats just seem out of touch on the sort of their goals for the country, right? What's it, what's important to Democratic voters seems to them like issues that don't relate to them. Right. How much of that is the case? I don't think we should uh, in any way abandon our values. And by the way, I became the first state representative back when I was a state legislator. I became the first Democrat ever to win my state rep district. And I went on to be a founding member of the LGBT Equality Caucus in the state house. Now, when I was showing up at weekly civic meetings, did I necessarily lead with that? No. If I was asked about it, I didn't apologize for it and I explained it. But people, I think, had a connection with me. I knocked on their doors. They knew me. That was really important and gave me credibility to then pull people along, maybe in areas where they weren't quite sold yet. If we don't do that first part, though, letting people know that we actually care about them, uh, making sure that we do seem relatable and not, quote-unquote, elitist, that is really important. And the challenge, right, is that this is kind of hard to put into words. It's one of those things that you know it when you say it. Um, I, I am concerned that sometimes as a party, fairly or unfairly, we do come off getting tagged with that elitist label, looking like we're much more comfortable in certain upscale areas where everyone has an Ivy League degree rather than hanging out at my local Knights of Columbus Hall watching an Eagles game. And the president also does an excellent job through his Twitter feed of making the case that it is Democrats who are the ones who are out of touch with the values in these white areas. Yeah. He, of course, he's a fraud. And um, he in no way represents uh, the best interest of the kind of voters we're talking about it. But he does pantomime very well. Now, I, let's be clear, though, that I, I think that there is a nuance of difference. For, the, for someone who is responding to Trump's ugliest rhetoric, whether it's on race or immigration, we're probably not winning that voter. Barack Obama didn't win them both times, and they probably weren't voting Democratic for the last generation. That's not the kind of voter that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of voter who didn't go to college, has a um, manufacturing job, is concerned about his or her future. Let's not forget, by the way, while we tend to think male, the majority of these kind of workers are actually female, and is looking for candidates who will just fight for them. These kind of folks that I'm describing liked and voted for Barack Obama, and in 2016 were still fed up, still frustrated, and decided they would give a shot to Donald Trump. So I, I look at them as really such a key, the key swing constituency of my state. And I do believe our success or failure in 2020 will, will rest with them. Democratic Congressman Brendan Boyle. And from Pennsylvania's 2nd District, we go to the 3rd. My name is Congressman Dwight Evans from the 3rd Congressional District. Congressman Evans, thank you for being here. We are sitting in your district, yes, aren't we? Yes, yes. Uh, right across from the Liberty Bell. Liberty Bell Constitution Center. 
Describe your district for listeners. Um, has some of the gems of the starting of America. When you think about uh, Independence Hall, the Constitution Center, Betsy Ross, uh, Ben Franklin was first postmaster, um, the zoo. Um, you think about Pennsylvania Hospital, University of Penn. Uh, all those are a mixture of the historical aspect of America, and they reflect what America is all about. We sat down earlier with your Philadelphia colleague, Congressman Boyle, yes. and um, talked to him a little bit about what he saw during the 2016 campaign as we're looking forward to 2020. Tell us what you saw in 2016, and was your sense as Election Day came and went that um, – you were surprised, not surprised by the outcome in Pennsylvania? I was surprised. And the reason I was surprised is because since 1988, Pennsylvania has voted um, basically blue, if you want to describe mm -hmm. that, that particular way. Uh, and I was extremely, as a matter of fact, I was here that weekend when President Obama, uh, First Lady Michelle Obama, the Clintons, was all down in this location, a huge turnout. I will never forget that night. And I was thinking to myself, there was no way that Hillary Clinton could lose the election. Under no circumstances did I anticipate her to lose. Because Pennsylvania is a rural state in nature. You know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, a lot of people talk about that, but all in between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh... It's 12 million people, but it's a rural state. But I thought in no way that she could lose. So that was a real shock to my system. As a matter of fact, it was an embarrassment because I always think Pennsylvania has been in the forefront of social justice, freedom, liberty, all of the things that you you talk about. So that was really a disappointment. And there was a lot of hand-wringing after the election and finger-pointing, and some of it was at Philadelphia. You heard some Democrats say, well, if Philadelphia had just turned out, Hillary Clinton would have won. What do you say to them? Well, I think Philadelphia did turn out. Um, you know, we lost by 42,000 votes uh, in the state. And recall there was an additional uh, third-party candidates that was in the race. So the third-party candidates, you take that combination, uh, and then there's some debate about not paying attention to the smaller areas part of the state. But I say this to you. We are far more aware today than we were from 2016 to 2020. Uh, the election of Governor Wolf beating an incumbent, uh, the state Supreme Court, uh, there is much more attentiveness. And I think that uh, with... President Trump, I mean, he's been literally living in Pennsylvania. I think he's been here 35 mm -hmm. times. That tells you something. So the difference between 2016 and 2020 is there's far much more awareness on the part of Democrats. But also the things that President Trump is doing. I mean, you can talk about the war issue, talk about the impeachment defenses, all those external factors, I believe, has brought a sense of awareness that is here today. When you talk to your constituents about either the 2020 election, what's going on in Washington, what are they telling you? What's important to them and what are they not seeing necessarily from Democrats? Well, I think that, you know, initially uh, there's 18 congressional districts and in the district you're in, I'm, I'm probably the most Democratic district mm -hmm. of all the districts in the state, let alone virtually one or two in the nation, where Hillary Clinton got about 96% of the vote. So the initial aspect was, it was in this district, if you remember, President Trump said to African Americans, what the hell do you have to lose? He said it in this district, virtually no further. So the first thing in terms of African Americans, they have been very clear that President Trump has not been in the interest of the country. So I think you now see that there's more awareness, but health care is an issue. Uh, prescription drugs, insulin uh, is something that they talk about. Uh, the aspect of jobs, 25% uh, poverty in the city of Philadelphia in this particular district. So poverty, health care, um, you know, 
kind of the soul of America. I mean, people don't expect America to be the way it is. There were obviously some mistakes uh, in the founding of America and flawed aspect of it. But I think that they feel like this president is not in the best interest of of this country. Now, you have endorsed in the Democratic primary. You've endorsed Vice President Biden, as has your Philadelphia colleague, Congressman Boyle. What was your reasoning behind endorsing Biden? Um, Two basic reasons. Um, Governing and electability. You don't hear people talk about governing. When they ask me what kind of Democrat am I, I describe myself from the governing wing. You have to get someone elected in order to govern. And with the challenges that we face today of all the candidates, and we've got a lot of great candidates, all of our great candidates, but you can only have one president. You can only have one nominee. And I thought, in my opinion, that the best one who had the best chance. There's not a guarantee, so I want to be very clear. I mean, in my view, it's still 50-50 on uh, what takes place. I thought the best person who was in the best position to make this happen is Vice President Biden. I say that because when you really think about it, uh, he was chairman of foreign affairs, chairman of judiciary, vice president of the United States. That kind of combination of a skill set that I believe he has the necessary tools uh, in order to uh, to lead this country for where we are today. That's my That was my judgment. Mm-hmm. I've been for him since May, the very first day he came out, I was out there. So I'll just share with you, I think that he's in the best position to win. What do you say to some Democrats who believe that Vice President Biden, if he's the nominee, isn't going to do enough to generate enthusiasm from younger voters, from voters of color? No single person is going to be able to do what you just described. It's going to be a collective. President Obama is not coming through that door again, right? So let's be very clear about that. No single person. And it's not a single event. It's all of us as citizens. I tell people over and over again, the most important title is not congressman, not pres- it is citizen. So the fact of the matter is no Vice President Biden in himself won't magic. With all due respect to these other candidates, they won't be able to do it by themselves. It is a collective, and it is the person who has the best ability to connect. Congressman Evans, thanks so much for coming in and speaking with me. I'm going to go check out the Liberty Bell before I leave. <laughs> I do that. That's a must. That's a must. <laughs> thanks. Thank you. So after my conversations with the congressman from Philadelphia, I wanted to talk to a local political person, someone who could give me a more up-close, like granular look at the issues and the people and the politics of Philadelphia and to help us understand what has or hasn't shifted in the city since the 2016 election. Hi, my name is Kendra Brooks. Uh, council, I'm sorry. I have to get used to the title. <laughs> Hello, my name is Council Member Kendra Brooks. Council Member Brooks sat down with me in Philadelphia where she told me about how she won her spot on the council as a member of the Working Families Party and the grassroots activism that helped her to do it. For me, it happened because of the organizing and activism work that I've done here in the city, the opportunity for us to see something different, the fact that so many working-class folks have been kind of disconnected or not excited about um, the political atmosphere currently in Philadelphia and literally across the country. I think it happened because I focused on uh, bringing out people to vote on issues. It wasn't really about me. It was about the issues that I um, stand for, which is, you know, quality education and making sure people make a living wage and uh, affordable, accessible housing, gun violence. These are things that are plaguing so many people in this city, and people were listening. Thinking about your success there and how you motivated voters to come out talking about these issues, people who maybe felt like they weren't part of the process in 2016 or haven't been asked for their vote before, what do you think that the candidates running for president, the Democratic nominee, should take 
from what you learned in Philadelphia as they look to trying to win this state in 2020? I think we should pay attention to, for lack of a better word, the least of us. And I'm saying the least of us are folks that aren't traditionally engaged in the voting process, the folks that are mostly affected about some of these issues that they want to put on the forefront, whether it's health care, education. I think a lot of times the folks that are closest to the pain are the folks that are ignored the most, and they really aren't sought after as voters. And I think the presidential candidates should pay attention to that. I think we have a small percentage of people that vote anyway in this country. I think true democracy is seen when um, more people are engaged in the process and even more so when people believe in the process. And currently, you know, we have to work towards getting that. Yeah, I'm curious, like your sense of as you were talking to voters, you were running in 2019. Mm -hmm. What were they saying just about, you know, there's the city of Philadelphia, but did they connect that to bigger national issues? The man in the White House is who he is. In order for to change him, we have levels of electoral work to do. We need to get uh, politicians on a local level that support the issues we care about. We have to get politicians on the statewide level across the state that care about the issues that we focus on. So that would mean not only you going to vote, but making sure your family and friends that live in the middle of Pennsylvania understand the importance of us getting him out of here. Um, and then on a federal level, and I think all of that is political education, which was all part of the conversation in my campaign. Because like I said, it wasn't about me winning. It's about a win for working people. And a win for working people is that we continually to work on having representation across local, state, and on a national level that represents our voice. Both the Democrats and Republicans didn't really love the fact that you ran and won. Well, change is hard and change is, you know, not always easy. The conversations that I've had one-on-one with both Democrats and Republicans has not been horrible. Like, most of it was decent conversations uh, because ultimately, now that I am in this seat, in order for, you know, working families to win, Working families in the, I'm not talking about the party, working families in the city to have any win on these issues, we need to build allies. I think the fear of change is most of the conversation, not that they were against what I stand for. Like, even as a Democrat, I've been, a, I was a Democrat most of my life. They support quality education, you know, and affordable, accessible housing. Um, but I think the, the pushback was just this shift. And, and what comes next and the fear of what comes next. And I'm not sure what that's going to be. If that's my next question, I'm not sure what comes <laughs> next. <laughs> In your campaign, did you put together – it seems like what you did is you put together an operation that engaged people who hadn't been part of the process before. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how involved and engaged do you think they'll continue to be? Again, 2020. 2021, 2020, you know, going through the process. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the focus was that bringing politics and political education to the doorsteps. So we had an extensive door knocking campaign, not only on my campaign side, but we, it was a huge independent expenditure through the Working Families Party. And we went through the neighborhoods that people usually don't door knock. Um, we even sent literature out to folks that usually aren't asked for votes. Our target, uh, demographics was like 18 to 42 because those folks are the folks that are most likely to be willing to change and have more to say about the status quo than those that are older, even though I'm above that demographic. (laughs) But one thing we did find, like when I knocked on doors, I was like, you can't knock on the door of an ex for an 18 year old and their parent is not going to engage in conversation which means we had an opportunity to expand our target market um, based on those conversations on the door. We were able to activate a younger base of folks that were interested in the political education and change that were willing to join voluntarily. We started our campaign like when we were petitioning with over 100 volunteers. So, you know, traditional ways of gathering votes and activating voters, we didn't use as much of that. We had a huge volunteer canvas as well as a paid canvas, um, as well as, you know, I, my running mate, Nicholas O'Rourke, we were very uh, set on activating certain neighborhoods um, 
and certain people that usually aren't included in this process. Um, and the win for both of us meant that it would be a shift or some level of increase in voter turnout in those areas. Councilmember Brooks, thank you so much for coming in and, and talking with me. I really appreciate this. Thank you for the invitation. Pennsylvania is not the only key battleground state we'll be watching in 2020. Wisconsin is also critical. President Trump won the state by just over 20,000 votes in 2016, and we expect the 2020 race to be equally close. In a state where even a shift of a few hundred voters will be consequential, the parties, the candidates, other organizations are looking for ways to engage voters who haven't been traditionally part of the political process. Today, we look at the formerly incarcerated. The state of Wisconsin, individuals are granted their right to vote once they have completed their sentence, uh, meaning that they're, uh, you can't be on probation, parole, or extended supervision with a felony conviction and cast a ballot. That's Jerome Dillard, the state director of an organization called Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or EXPO. They formed in Wisconsin back in 2014. We were engaged with uh, a state organization, a faith-based statewide organization called Wisdom. And there was a group of us who were uh, doing work with Wisdom because of our self-interest, and that was criminal justice reform in the state of Wisconsin. At one of the meetings we got together, those who had been impacted by the criminal justice system, uh, we got together and just said, you know, what would it look like if we had our own organization? Fast forward to today, and Expo has five chapters across Wisconsin, and they're laser-focused on registering people to vote. What we're aiming to do here is really touch those, uh, what we call the low-propensity voters, mm-hmm. individuals who have been impacted by incarceration or a family member. Uh, what we've found uh, in the state of Wisconsin is uh, once individuals have completed their sentence, they're still under the assumption that they cannot vote because they're felons. It it surprised me how many, since we launched our Unlock the Vote campaign, how many individuals who are formerly incarcerated never knew that they had the right to vote after they were done with their sentence. And voter disenfranchisement disproportionately impacts African-Americans. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, one out of nine African-Americans of voting age in Wisconsin is disenfranchised or ineligible to vote due to a felony conviction, compared to one out of 50 Wisconsin voters. I asked Jerome Dillard to walk me through the process, how his group targets potential voters. There's a connection with individuals who have been incarcerated. And uh, we know that many of these individuals are released to certain zip codes in our state. The 53206 zip code in Milwaukee is one of the most incarcerated zip codes in the country. And and so uh, targeting those communities uh, with uh, low propensity, with individuals whose fathers and grandfathers and uncles who got caught up in the uh, uh, war on drugs and the mass incarceration era, uh, which we're still in, but uh, those individuals, you see, you find generations and generations of non-voters. Number one, many have been disenfranchised for so long that it is not important to them. And uh, also these communities are under what I call chronic stress. Everyday living, you know, how I'm going to pay the rent, how am I going to feed my family? Those are the things that they're being consumed with daily. Uh, But we have to reach these individuals to state the importance of voting. Who would be on the the school board? Who represents the communities? Our push is to educate, uh, to encourage and get individuals out. And this is a very, very important year for us all, especially in the state of Wisconsin. Jerome Dillard, the state director of an organization called Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or EXPO. Their goal is to register 70,000 low-propensity voters ahead of the 2020 election. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried 
to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Just about everybody knows that health care has been an animating issue in the Democratic primary. That family is now paying $12,000 a year for health care, 20% of the income on the Medicare for all. That family will be paying $1,200 a year. We got to keep moving us to a place where everybody is covered at the lowest possible cost. Health care is a basic human right. And it's been at the forefront of political campaigns for at least the last 10 years. Republicans, including President Trump, have run on a platform of getting rid of Obamacare. And one thing we have to do, repeal and replace the disaster known as Obamacare. It's destroying our country. It's destroying our businesses, our small business and our big businesses. In 2018, Democrats won control of the House in part by vowing to protect the ACA, especially its popular pre-existing protection provision. Healthcare continues to rank as one of the top issues for voters, and Republicans and Democrats, I expect, are going to try and weaponize the issue for the fall campaign. Today, we're discussing the fate of a lawsuit put forward by Republicans and supported by the president. And that lawsuit questions whether or not the ACA is constitutional. Should Republicans get a favorable ruling? around 20 million Americans would become uninsured. Joining me to make sense of all of it is Margot Sanger-Katz, a healthcare reporter for The Upshot at The New York Times. So this lawsuit came about in 2018, so earlier than the election, but sort of in that post-repeal falling apart period. And it came from the states. A number of Republican attorneys general and a couple of governors said, we still want to repeal Obamacare. It seems like the legislative process hasn't happened. We think it will be politically useful to keep this idea in the air as our candidates are running uh, in congressional races and in gubernatorial and attorneys general races in 2018. And they seized upon a change that Congress made to the health law uh, in the tax reform bill, actually. So in the tax reform bill, Congress changed the law's individual mandate. So this is like the least popular part of Obamacare. This is the part that says if you don't have insurance and you can't afford it, you have to pay a tax penalty to the government. And it was designed as an incentive to get people to buy insurance, not just wait until they got sick. Uh, But nobody really liked that provision very much. And what Congress did for complicated reasons is they didn't totally get rid of that provision. But what they did is they left the requirement in place, but they lowered the penalty to zero dollars. So it says you need to buy insurance or you pay a penalty of zero. And the legal theory here is that that is actually an unconstitutional structure, that uh, the reason why the penalty was allowable under the Constitution before was because it was a tax, that Congress has the taxing power. That's one of the things that uh, the Constitution allows Congress to do. And that by taking away that tax, somehow it invalidated this provision. And then further, the case argues, and I think this is the part that is the most legally controversial, They said, if this one part of Obamacare is found to be legally invalid, then the whole law needs to go away, that it is such an important, essential, linchpin piece of the law that we can't just excise it and leave all of the other things that Obamacare does, that instead we need to take the whole thing off the books and turn the clocks back to 2009. And... A federal district court judge in Texas who is a very conservative judge, who is sort of a favorite judge of these kinds of Republican state lawsuits, they often bring their cases to him first, he agreed with them. And he said that all of Obamacare should go away. And then the case went to an appeals court. This is a three-judge panel in New Orleans, had two Republican-appointed judges and one Democratic-appointed judge. And that court was kind of expected to agree that in the oral arguments, they seemed sympathetic to these arguments that this provision was unconstitutional and that it would be too hard to unravel Obamacare piece by piece, that it would need to just all go. But then they surprised us. Uh, So when they ruled on the case, they said that 
Uh, they agreed that the changes to the individual mandate made it unconstitutional. But they said that they weren't sure about the rest and they wanted the lower court to do more work. It's also true that the Trump administration supported this lawsuit. They could, yeah. have just, they, they could have stayed out of this. Generally speaking, when people raise lawsuits that say a law that was passed by Congress and signed by a president, even a past president, when someone is challenging that law, the normal thing that the Justice Department does is they defend the law. Because the Justice Department is sort of supposed to defend laws that were properly passed. And sometimes they win in court and sometimes they lose in court. But the Trump administration did something very unusual. It's not unprecedented, but it is very rare, where they basically said, we agree with these litigants. Like, we do not support this law. We also think that it's unconstitutional. But I would say that the most accurate way of describing its position now is that it also supports the complete annihilation of Obamacare. Do you have any sense of why they were willing to sort of take that political risk? You hear the president saying over and over, I'm never going to take away your pre-existing conditions. Don't worry about it. We just got to get rid of Obamacare. It's interesting. So I have not myself done this reporting, but there has been good reporting in a couple of different news outlets, I think led by Politico, that this is the president's decision, that other people in the administration, including the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, said this is not a good position for you to have, that the results of winning this lawsuit would be really, really disruptive, and that it is, in fact, possible to separate these pieces and that it makes sense to make the argument in court that even if you think this one part is problematic, there's a lot of Obamacare that could be saved. But the attorney general, uh, William Barr, said, no, we should argue that Obamacare uh, should be entirely invalidated. And it was really the president himself who said, OK, let's do this. Um, so I don't know. It doesn't strike me as politically necessarily the shrewdest move. There definitely are a lot of Republican voters who still want to repeal Obamacare. Right. Right. When you poll on this question, there is, I think, a majority of Republican voters, in fact, continue to want to repeal Obamacare. But we know that they didn't like the solutions that Republicans brought forward in Congress. And I think that's important in this context for two reasons. One is that obviously this is handing the Democrats a very powerful message. If Obamacare is in peril, they seem to know how to mobilize around that. They've won elections with that message. But I also think that Republicans don't really have a good plan for what to do if Obamacare goes away. The bills that failed to pass in Congress were not just trying to erase Obamacare. They were taking, they were leaving some parts, taking some parts away, and building something new. And there just was not consensus among them about what that new thing should look like. So if the courts completely eliminated Obamacare all at once and said, it is gone, we are turning the clock back to 2009 before this law passed. I think it really could put Republicans in not just a political but kind of a practical bind where they don't they're not ready with a plan. They don't know what they're going to do, what their blueprint for a world without Obamacare looks like. I think they do not want all of Obamacare to go away and there to be nothing else. They understand that lots of people are going to lose their insurance. There will be a lot of other uh, the pre-existing conditions protections would go away, which, which they know are really popular. Right. And then there's all this other stuff in the health care law that we very rarely talk about, but actually is really important. So Obamacare made a lot of changes to the way that Medicare pays for things that are designed to try to improve the quality of our health care system, that are saving the federal government money, which Republicans tend to like. Uh, it created a way to approve generic versions of these very expensive biologic drugs, things like insulins that would go away and there would be all of these drugs that maybe would no longer be approved or that are in the pipeline that might no longer have a way to become drugs. So many, um, you know, unintended consequences could come from a, a total repeal of this law. So let's get back to where we started, which is given that the president wants this to see this law repealed, that his administration supported a lawsuit that would repeal all of Obamacare. Why are they now telling the Supreme Court, hey, hey, you know what? You don't have to take up this case. It's okay. We can we can wait a while until we get a final answer on whether Obamacare is constitutional or not. So I think there's a legal reason and there's a political reason. So the legal reason is that it is not normal for the Supreme Court to take a case like this at this stage. You know, normally the Supreme Court waits until the lower courts are done with their work. And 
because there's not an emergency, normally you would just let the courts work through their normal process. I think politically, having this case be very close to its conclusion and having there be a risk that all of the things that we just talked about would happen is likely to be very politically disadvantageous for Republicans going into the 2020 election. And, you know, in large part, it's because they don't have a plan to replace Obamacare that they can rally behind and that the country supports. The reality check here for Democrats, which is after being on offense in 2018 on health care, here was an opportunity for them to once again make the case that it was Republicans and the president who were trying to roll back these popular programs. Now, they don't have the opportunity to talk as much about that because the case isn't going to be decided. Yeah, I mean, I think Democrats are in this weird position of both, of course, wanting Obamacare to be preserved because it's their legacy and because they think it's good policy and good for the country, but also kind of wanting it to be a little bit in danger so that they can remind voters that they are the ones who will protect it. And it's almost like this strange game of chicken. You know, they're really trying to rush it through the courts and get the Supreme Court to take it as quickly as possible. And I think that's partly because they think their odds are good in the court, but also the the fact that they're talking about this threat and that they're they, this threat is elevated if it gets closer to its conclusion, you know, is a reminder that it's very hard to predict what the Supreme Court is going to do, and the composition of the court could really change at any time. You know, we have the nine justices that we have right now, but if this case was taken up by the court, we don't know what could happen in the meantime. Maybe someone could retire or could have some kind of health problem. So. Uh, It is a risky position that Democrats find themselves in. But I think uh, after years of the status quo being unfavorable to voters, the status quo has suddenly become something that voters want to protect. And we're sort of seeing the two parties jostle to say that they are the protectors of it. The Democrats feel Republicans are threatening the ACA. That's good for them. They can say, we'll protect your pre-existing conditions. And if there's not this threat, then I think we're going to see a very different dynamic around health care in the election. But I think Republicans really feel like that is an easier thing for them to run against if the ground can be the contrast between the status quo and Medicare for all. I think Republicans think that's a good place for them to fight this battle. Whereas I think if the fight is about repealing Obamacare without a plan to replace it versus keeping things the way they are, that's something that Democrats would like. Margo Singer-Katz, thank you for coming in. It was great to see you. It's great to see you. Thank you. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. While the House of Representatives is exhibiting to the Senate of the United States articles of impeachment against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. On Thursday, the impeachment trial of President Trump officially began in the Senate with the formal introduction of articles of impeachment by House managers and the swearing in of Chief Justice John Roberts, who will preside over the trial. Senators, I attend the Senate in conformity with your notice for the purpose of joining with you for the trial of the President of the United States. I am now prepared to take the oath. Will you place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand? Ultimately, a vote on whether or not to convict President Trump in the Senate is expected to fall largely along partisan lines. Though there are a handful of Republican senators in vulnerable seats who face additional pressure. One of those is Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who is up for re-election this fall. Now, over the years, Collins has crafted an image of a moderate, independent lawmaker. And in 2017, she sided with Democrats in voting against the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. But she also stuck with the president and her Republican colleagues when it came to the tax cut bill and the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. I sat down with Steve Missler, the chief political correspondent at Maine Public Radio, to discuss Collins's latest political balancing act. Right now, I'm looking at a poll that was released last fall that asserted that impeachment could end Susan Collins's career. Now, I'm not entirely sure that I buy that proclamation. But it's certainly very problematic for her because it comes on the heels of some votes that she has taken since Trump took office that have uh, really put her in a pickle with voters that have traditionally supported her over the years and, you know, uh, fueled these landslide reelection victories that she's had since she first came to the Senate. 
course, one of those was the Brett Kavanaugh vote, uh, which she received a ton of national attention for. And then there was the GOP tax bill, which continues to sort of follow her even now as uh, some dark money groups and other liberal groups try to really just sort of sandblast her moderate or centrist image. And of course, so now impeachment is really, really testing that. At the same time, you know this quite well. Maine, to me, is basically two states. There's southern Maine, and it's more Democratic and liberal. And then there's northern Maine, more rural and more Republican. And the congressman from that northern, more Republican part of the state, Jared Golden, was one of the few Democrats to actually, he split his vote on articles of impeachment. I'm wondering what that tells us, though, about Susan Collins and how she could manage this. I think a lot of people are expecting Susan Collins to perhaps do something similar, maybe vote for one article of impeachment and not the other. Although I'm beginning to wonder if she'll vote for either one, you know, or actually I was thinking that up until the recent uh, revelations about Lev Parnas and everything else, where she's really under pressure to call for additional witnesses and allow other testimony. As a Republican these days, the president has really just sort of taken over the party. This, and uh, she's trying to operate in a place that she always has, like sort of this middle ground. But it's hard to do that now, I think. I mean, the president is so polarizing and divisive. You know, you either think he's the best president ever or you think he's uh, an existential threat to the country. And it seems like there's really a hard – it's hard to be in the middle of those two very – deep entrenched positions. Yet that's where Collins likes to operate. That's her sort of wheelhouse. But I feel like that ground is really uh, shrinking for her. And it it really has done so ever since uh, Trump came to office in 2017. Yeah, that I uh, absolutely agree with you, Steve. It seems like she is in this impossible situation where no matter what she does, there will be a group of voters who believe it was the absolute wrong thing to do. And so if she does ultimately support, let's say, support impeachment, I think not only would she face the backlash from Republicans in the state, but tell me how you feel about this, but I just don't think she would get the kind of credit from Democratic-leaning voters or voters maybe who at one time would cross over and vote for a Susan Collins. I don't know that they would give it to her in this era with Trump on the top of the ticket. I wonder about that too, honestly, because he's such a divisive figure. In the Kavanaugh vote, I mean, a lot of the Democrats uh, that are, you know, moderate Democrats that have supported her over the years really saw that as a betrayal. I mean, when I did uh, interviewed voters, uh, you really got the sense that people were just really, really angry. And not all of these folks were people that would oppose Susan Collins anyway. You know, they maybe have never voted for her ever. These are people who have voted for her, some of them. And, you know, as you look at her approval ratings in some of the national polls like Morning Consult, you've seen a dip. And, you know, I mean, you have to wonder, where is safe harbor for her now? Is it with the party, with Mitch McConnell, who's already holding a lot of fundraisers for her in this re-election fight that people expect is going to be very difficult? What happens if she splits her votes on impeachment, given Mitch McConnell's, you know, declarations that he doesn't expect any Republicans to vote for impeachment, or he would be disappointed if they did? I mean, does that money and that source of um, funds and support, does that dry up if she does that? I don't know. And um, I mean, the president is certainly hoping so. He has retweeted endorsements uh, of her from Lindsey Graham and others. So he's clearly watching and trying to curry her favor. Steve, does she get any credit? I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago that Democrats were lauding her, including Democrats in the state, for her vote against the health care uh, repeal. But it seems like that was such that's- a long time ago that that's now not a topic that people are even talking about anymore. Yeah, it's it's almost like it never happened. But when it did happen, I mean, she flew home after that vote and there were people in the airport in Bangor that stood up and applauded her. And this was not a staged event. You know, these were just people that were there. It wasn't activists who had sort of lined up. But you never hear about that anymore. Are your TV airways in Maine being overwhelmed with advertising, urging Senator Collins to either vote to impeach the president or to stick with the president? What I think is that she's seeing more pressure 
internally from party leaders or activists or what have you. I think that's where the pressure is right now. If she were to signal something like uh, say, oh, I want to call John Bolton as a witness or, you know, to express more than she has so far, then maybe those ads would come. What our airwaves are dominated by are people on the other side of the impeachment issue, people who want to remove the president from office. Uh, Republicans for the rule of law were running ads over the, the holiday season, basically calling on her to use her leverage in the Senate to call for these additional witnesses that were blocked by the White House and the House inquiry. That's where all the ads have been so far. And those are coupled with ads that have been running since August, really hammering Susan Collins on the tax cut vote, on Kavanaugh. And she has been able to respond in kind. She has um, a super PAC that's been assisting her and trying to sort of rehabilitate or remind people of her moderate and independent image. Um, They've been operating too. So there's definitely some ad wars, but the impeachment ones have been pretty one-sided and they're definitely tilted towards people who want to remove the president from office at the moment anyway. Steve Missler, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me about this. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It was a pleasure. Steve Missler, Chief Political Correspondent at Maine Public Radio. That's all for us today. I want to thank the folks at WHYY for hosting me. We were only able to scratch the surface of the politics of this state. Now, one thing we heard while in Philadelphia was that Democrats' success rests on talking to voters who've been ignored by the party in recent years. Poor and underrepresented residents of the city, as well as the white working class voters in and around Philadelphia. It's also worth noting that the two Democratic congressmen who represent Philadelphia see Joe Biden as the best able to do that. All right, we're hitting the road again next week, heading to Iowa. What questions do you have about the state? Tweet them to me. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. That's all for us today. I want to say thank you to Rob Gunther, who leaves the show this week. And we're sending our best to host Tanzina Vega, who's officially starting her maternity leave. Get all the sleep you can now, Tanzina. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>